I'm turning this morning uh, to the book of Romans, book of Romans and chapter 10. Book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul's prayer, Paul's heart's desire is that Israel, his brethren in Israel, his fellow brothers, as it were, in his nation, is that they might be saved. And our subject this morning is checking heart's desire. What is your heart's desire? If I was to ask you to write it down, as it were, what is your heart's desire? What do you really want? If you were to have an overall aim in your life, what is it? What would it be, honestly? Maybe you're here this morning and you found yourself in this place and you're not a Christian, you don't know anything about these things. Your heart's desire could be something entirely for this world. It may be that your heart's desire is on the next car you're to buy or the next house you're to buy or your career or whatever it might be, having a family. None, none of those things are particularly bad, but that might be your heart's desire. That's, that's the level it gets to. It may be that you're a Christian in this place this morning and you've wandered a little bit. Your heart's desire isn't really in tune with Paul's heart's desire, which was for the salvation of his fellow Israelites. So what is our heart's desire or our goodwill, our heart's will? In uh, the book of Ephesians it says, The Lord predestinated us according to the good pleasure of his will. According, it's the same word, according to the desire of his will. So Paul's example here for us and our test this morning is that question, what is your heart's desire? And I just want to go back then to chapter 9 and verse 1. Because here we have the Apostle Paul really setting the scene for that great prayer. And in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says that he says the truth in Christ, he doesn't lie, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Even as a Christian, the Apostle Paul had great heaviness. This word heaviness is translated normally in the New Testament, is translated by the word, English word sorrow. So Paul would say, I have great sorrow and sorrow in my heart. The words are almost the same. I have great anguish and great sorrow in my heart. Is it true for us? Is it true for you this morning that you have great heaviness and anguish in your heart every day that you live because of the lost estate of your friends, because you have friends who don't know God, you have family who are unsaved, you have children who are unsaved. Do you have anguish and heaviness in your heart? Is it your heart's desire that they would be saved? This is the Apostle Paul's example to us. It's a massive contrast, isn't it, to the previous chapter. When we read those chapters in our scripture reading, it was almost hard to read going from chapter 8 to chapter 9 because there's such a contrast. The Apostle Paul is like an aeroplane that takes off chapter 8 of Romans. I'm sure you know it well, but it starts 
at a, at a lightening pace. There is now for no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, because the law of the Spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. And it gets faster and faster, like an aeroplane down the runway, and it takes off. And from those verses in 28 onwards, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called, according to his purpose. And towards the end, he's reaching his climax. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, or powers, or height, or depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this plane is in the air. And I don't know if Paul was knowingly writing under inspiration, whether he knew he was writing the word of God. I rather think he was writing this letter to the Romans and he must have reflected on it and thought about it. I can't believe that he went straight into writing chapter 9. I think he's in a, he's in a, a way he's writing in a, in a spirit of joy and he is thinking and meditating upon the things to come. He's thinking and meditating upon the fact that nothing can separate him from God. If you're a Christian here this morning, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can sever the cords that tie you to him. And then, chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. I, I almost imagine the apostle to be in tears writing this part. I don't know whether he wrote it the next day or after a break. But it seems to me like he might have written chapter 8 and he thinks about the wonders to come. He thinks about the many blessings that they've got, he's got in the Lord Jesus. He thinks about how all things are going to work together for good. There's no condemnation to him anymore. And it's as if his mind turns. His mind turns to his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, the Jews. And he can't bear it. Such is the anguish and the sorrow in his heart because they on the whole won't experience these things many of them have rejected the Lord Jesus and will reject him and Paul has then great uh, sorrow great evident great heaviness anguish in his heart and an astonishing third verse of chapter 9 for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh. If, we, if you have time in the week, think about that. Meditate upon that. The Apostle Paul was so full of love for unbelievers. He was so compassionate about their state and their end that he's willing that he could be a curse from Christ for them. What does that mean? What does that mean? People debate what it means. Could Paul possibly mean that he's willing to suffer hell for the sake of his fellow brothers, Israelites, the Jews? Some people say no, he can't mean that. He can't mean that because that would mean he loves the Jews more than he loves Christ. He wants to be with Christ. He said all that in, the chapter, in chapter 8. He would disagree with that. For him to then wish that he could be accursed and, and not to go to heaven for the sake of others. Some people think it means a, a temporal uh, 
separation. He wished he could be a curse from Christ in this life, perhaps, uh, that he might win the Jews. I rather think he's just speaking poetically. He knows, he knows that he wants to go to heaven. He knows that nothing can separate him from that. He knows that he has eternal bliss waiting for him when he dies. But he just reflects for a moment and thinks, I love these people so much. I have such a burden for those people that if it were possible, if it were possible, and, it, and it's not, but if it was possible, I could almost wish, I could almost wish myself accursed, myself uh, separated from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Well, that's a, that's a high example. That's a high calling for you and I this morning. And I, I speak to myself more than I speak to you. How much love and compassion do we have for those around us, for our friends, for our family, in our hearts? Is it any, does it get anywhere near the Apostle Paul who had great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart? If you ever wished, if you ever prayed for somebody with tears, wishing that you could almost lose your own salvation if they were to be saved, that's, that's the level of the Apostle Paul this morning. He knew they, suffered, they would suffer great condemnation because he says in verse 4, they had the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. They had uh, light and understanding above many of the Gentile nations. They had a special care of God. Surely their condemnation, therefore, would be even worse. Well, you may say, well, that's easy for Paul. You don't know my situation. You don't know my family. They mock me. They scorn at me. You don't know my friends. They're horrible to me. You don't know the people that I have to deal with. Well, nobody has ever been as cruel to you as the Jews were to Paul. And a little survey of the book of Acts would highlight that to us. You don't have to turn to these, but I'll, uh, I'll just read a few verses from the book of Acts. We're going to begin in chapter 9. Listen to this, verse 22. Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, and the Jews took counsel to kill him. So thereafter his life... These Jews weren't the friends of Paul. They saw him as a reprobate. He separated himself from them. They were his enemies now, really. And another verse from Acts and chapter 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Maybe you have a, a relative who contradicts everything you say. A relative who you find distasteful. Maybe you find it hard to visit them. Maybe you have that friend who is difficult and uh, speaks ill of the Lord. And it's difficult for you to hear. Acts chapter 13 verse 50. The Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. I could keep going with examples in chapter 14 and 17 
all of these things happening to the Apostle Paul. And yet, for his enemies, even his enemies. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine having enemies such as the Apostle Paul? Somebody out there willing to kill you after your life, stirring up other people against you, speaking uh, evil things against you, and your response to that is to have great heaviness and anguish and sorrow for them and almost wish that you could be accursed from Christ for them. That's astonishing, isn't it? Really, really astonishing. And that's the example of the Apostle Paul. Where did he get that from? Where did he get it from? Well, he got it from his master. He got it from his saviour. He got it from the Lord Jesus himself. Do you know what the Lord Jesus did? He actually did what Paul wishes he could possibly do to take the hell of to, to, to take hell on behalf of somebody else. Well, the Lord Jesus came, didn't he? The Lord Jesus was uh, God in heaven before the foundation of the world. And he came to be born of a woman, to be born of the Virgin Mary. He came to live a life as a child like some of you. Perfect, pure, holy in every single way. Who when he was reviled, reviled not in return. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to that him that judgeth righteously. What was the Lord Jesus' attitude to unbelief? What did he say to unbelief? He said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. The Lord Jesus Christ did the ultimate sacrifice. He came from heaven to earth and went to Calvary's cross. And if you believe in him, all of your sin put upon him, he experienced your hell so that you might have heaven. That's what the Lord Jesus did when he came to die on Calvary's cross. He suffered the punishment for you if you would trust in him. So that's where Paul gets it from. That's where Paul's uh, love for his brethren comes from. It comes from the supreme example, the love of the Lord Jesus. He loved the world so much, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, even all those who would be his enemies, all of us by nature, would never have sought him, that they might not perish, but have everlasting life. And so that's the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful verse in Romans chapter 5. God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God commendeth his love toward us. He didn't die for good, somebody good. Romans again, we could spend all day in Romans. Romans says, oh, for a good man, some of you might dare to die. If there was a good person here today, somebody might think about dying in their place. For a good man, some might even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet dead in our sins and never thinking about him, never considering him, never repenting, never, no good in us at all, he died and took our punishment if we trust in him. Well, we have the example of Paul. We have the example of others. We have a rich Christian history to think about. 
that the Apostle Paul perhaps didn't have, but we've had so many examples of people who have this seeming burden and heaviness uh, in their hearts, things that people that we can look to, biographies that we can read. Uh, I'll just mention a, a few names to you. I'm sure you've heard of William Carey, not far from here, grew up in Leicester, where I come from, ended up in Northampton. But you know, he had a great burden. He used to love geography and nature. And he dreamt as a boy, when he became a Christian, of taking the gospel to far-flung nations, people who had never heard the gospel before. This was Carey's dream. And he wanted to go, and he was, he was burdened for the people who had never heard the gospel. He was burdened for countries where the gospel had never been before. People who would live and never hear a word about the Lord Jesus. We take it for granted, perhaps, that we have churches in this land. It's not, it's not a foreign thing, but in some lands, people could grow up and not hear a word about the Lord Jesus. And William Carey was trying to convince others in the church, in the churches, to support him or support somebody to go to the land of India to speak to them about the Lord. And in 1792, he preached his deathless sermon. They call it the deathless sermon. The sermon that everybody remembers. And uh, he preached that. And at the end, the conference, the, the council of ministers, they were just about to kind of say, well, good night, everybody. See you again. And Kerry said, is there nothing to be done? He grabbed Andrew Fuller and he said, is there nothing to be done? Are we going to let this go again? Are we going to let this fly again by with nothing happening? Desperate tides of the whole world's anguish forced through the channels of a single heart. That's what it was like. William Carey had all this anguish in his heart and it was going through just him and nobody else seemed bothered. And he said, is there nothing to be done? William Carey said, I'm not afraid of failure. I am afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. And that's a good, that's a good motto, isn't it? Be, be, be wary of succeeding in succeeding about things that don't matter. Think about the things that do. Think about uh, failing at things that do matter. Worry about that. William Carey had that great desire in his heart and it, and it pushed him. And by and by people would listen to him and you know the history of William Carey going to India. Well, David Brainard, you've both heard of a man called David Brainard, a, a missionary to the Native Americans, a uh, bit before Carey, 1740. He says this, I remember one day in particular, I walked a considerable distance from the college in the fields alone at noon, and in prayer found much unspeakable sweetness and delight in God that I thought, if I must continue still in this evil world, I wanted always to be there to behold God's glory. My soul dearly loved all mankind and longed exceedingly that they should enjoy what I enjoyed. Does your soul exceedingly, uh, does, it, does it long exceedingly that others should enjoy what you enjoy as a believer in the Lord Jesus? You may have heard of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor. What did he say? He said, there is a great Niagara of souls passing in the dark in China. Every day, every week, every month, they are passing away. I don't remember uh, who said this, but somebody recently said, four, four souls a day, four souls a minute, a second die, another four, another four, probably from this pulpit, I can't remember, but people slipping away. 
And Hudson Taylor had this vision of Niagara Falls, of souls passing into eternity every single minute. And he said, who's going to tell them? He had great heaviness, if you like, and anguish in his soul. John Patton, John Patton, uh, uh, 1858, a bit more recent, a minister, uh, minister in Scotland, went to the New Hebrides, Vanuatu, I think now. What did he say? The wail of the perishing heathen in the South Seas comes to my ears. So all of these people all had the same kind of uh, love, all the same kind of heart that the Apostle Paul had. And you'd have to, wouldn't you? When you think what they gave up, when you think the danger they put themselves in. Think of somebody like Jim Elliot. You may have never heard of Jim Elliot, a missionary to Ecuador. Uh, 1950s, much more recent. He was brutally murdered by those, the tribe that he went to, to speak to. And yet, his legacy lives on, doesn't it? Because he had anguish, he had sorrow in his heart. He wanted to reach those people who had no idea. They used to circle in planes above the tribe and to drop things from the plane, like gifts of fish and meat and uh, messages that said, we're actually your friends, we want to talk to you about these things. Such was their love. It would be so easy to ignore them. I'm talking to you this morning like I'm a, some kind of missionary, but if it, doesn't, it doesn't fill me with great joy to think about going to another country and, to, and to, to reach the lost. It fills me with dread. It fills me. It's not the sort of thing that I would want to do, doesn't, humanly speaking. So how much more the grace of God working in their hearts. They come to this position where they, they can't resist. They come to this position where they have to do it because they have this great heaviness in their hearts. And they're great examples for us. Go and read a biography of William Carey, David Brainard, Hudson Taylor, whoever you like, Jim Elliot, John Patton. All good examples of this, of this heart that they had for the lost. So just to, just to think then our challenge, what's our challenge? To have this heart when you go to school. Is there a school bully, somebody that antagonizes you? Maybe you're a Christian and they don't like it. Maybe you are ridiculed for your faith. Or your, your human nature wants to, to fight back. Your human nature wants to argue. Your human nature wants to, to win the fight. Your challenge is to have great heaviness and sorrow for them that they've got nothing better to do than to ridicule you. They've got nothing better in their life other than to just try and make life difficult for you. Such is the shallowness of their experience. All they need to do, all they want to do is to, to make your life miserable. Pray for them. Pray that they'll have eyes to see. Pray that they would have uh, enlightening eyes on the Word of God. Pray that you'd have opportunity to speak to them. That's your challenge. What about the office antagonist? Maybe you work in an office. Maybe you go in as a, into a den of lions. Maybe if you mentioned anything to do with what you've done at the weekend, they would be laughing at you. I know people that have been laughed at because they go to church. Well, our human nature wants to kind of recoil from them. I don't want to speak to them. I don't want to talk to them. They be kind of become an enemy. Well, just think of the Apostle Paul and all he experienced. And push yourself, or 
my heart's desire and prayer to God for that person in the office is that they might be saved. And you have continual sorrow in your heart because they face an eternity away from God. That's your challenge in the week ahead. Do you have unsaved family? Do you have brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, children not saved? Oh, your challenge in this week ahead is to have that as your top priority. Lord, my heart's desire and prayer to God for my children is that they might be saved. Oh Lord, I want to come with, with weeping in my heart that they might know. I cannot bear the thought of my children slipping into a lost eternity. I cannot bear the thought of my parents slipping into a lost eternity. I cannot bear it. Have that attitude. Or oh, pray for it. If you don't have it, pray for it. That you would have the spirit like the Apostle Paul had it this morning. What about the town of Bedford? What about the country of the UK? Oh, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart that we've rejected by and large the gospel, that we've slipped from those days. Oh Lord, give us, give us this uh, flame of fire in our hearts, our flame of devotion. Well, the promise of the scriptures is that if we pray, Psalm 126 says, those that sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. You must pray, pray with tears for the destiny of the lost and you will reap in due season if we faint not. So it's private prayer, isn't it? That's what will kindle a flame. Listen to this. It is probable that during every true revival, the most fervent and effectual prayers that are offered up go up from the closet and are never heard by any other ear than that which hears in secret. The Lord God will hear your prayer, your secret prayer in the closet. It may lead to a revival. It may do. Private prayer is important. What about the 17th century? Think about the Great Awakening of the 1800s. All of it was uh, based on the prayer societies, the prayerfulness of the people. The moving of the Spirit starts with prayer, people being led to prayer. In 1645, there was a man called Robert Bailey, and he said, truly, uh, he, he went to London for a conference, and he said, truly, the godly here are a praying people. They met often in houses, men, young, young men, old men, or oh, those exiled abroad. You think of the Puritans exiled to the Netherlands. There was a man there, his name was John Howe, a, a Puritan called John Howe, and it said that he was known for his prayers. And he used to wear a wig. And he said his wife knew what it was like when he got going in prayer. He said his, the sweat would drop from his wig and she would just go across gently, take his wig off, mop his brow, and put his wig back on. But such was the intensity of his prayers. His wife had to constantly uh, uh, service him with, his, with her handkerchief. Well, uh, great examples for us. Public prayer, so important. Communings together serve to increase interest and heighten each other in the spirit of prayer. And so it is. When we come together, we excite each other, we agree together. The Bible says the prayer meeting is like an orchestra with the instruments sounding together. And uh, just think about this. Your prayers, your prayers can reach 
people that maybe the preaching of the word never can. There'll be people in this world who never hear a sermon. But you could pray for them. And so our prayers are so important. What's the results of this? What's the results of all this? If you have this heart that the apostle had, if your great desire, your great heart's desire is for the lost, for your near ones and dear ones to be saved, what if that's your heart's desire? Well, it takes your eyes off the world for a start, doesn't it? If that's your heart's desire, there's nothing else that can go in its place. the, The position is filled. You take your eyes off the world, it keeps your perspective if you have trials, if you have disappointments and difficulties. Oh Lord, this is, a, this is a difficult thing, but my heart's desire is that others would be saved. And maybe this is an opportunity for me to show my faith. And maybe this is an opportunity for me to demonstrate the work of God in my life. You go into the office, people ridicule you each and every day. And then something happens to you that's seemingly really bad. And your response really speaks to them. Your response to that really uh, makes them see that you're different. And maybe that's the opportunity that you needed. And so even in trials and tribulations, it's an opportunity, maybe the opportunity that you needed uh, to speak to others. Gives you the right priorities. The right priorities in life. Everything falls in to this priority. It's like a business, isn't it? It's like a, uh, an evaluation. You say at the top, what's our, our business has an aim, a strategic aim, an objective. And everything that we do has to map to those objectives. You can't be doing something here that doesn't have an objective. How does it fit in with what we're trying to do? Well, it doesn't. Well, therefore, we won't do it. And so if you have an objective of uh, witness, if you have an objective of reaching the lost, If you have something in your life that really doesn't fit that and contradicts that, well then, we put it out. It helps us to prioritize. It helps us to think about what is right for us to do and what might not be right for us to do. And so the results of this aren't just for the good of others, but it's for our good as well. It keeps us and helps us and blesses us. Well, William Carey's deathless sermon, what did he say in it? Famous lines. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now, none of us here probably will end up in India or end up anywhere else other than in the town of Bedford. But in your life, this week, expect great things from God because he can do all things. Don't live your life thinking that God can't do this and he can't do that. God isn't powerful enough to save that person. He's not powerful enough to deal with that soul. Of course he is. Expect great things from him because he does exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or think. Expect great things from God and then attempt great things for him. The two go together. Expectation and attempt. Don't go through this week not really expecting anything. Don't go through this week not really attempting anything. That's how we can be quite often. We're so uh, full of the things of the world we lose sight of this great priority. Well, may it be our prayer and our motto this week ahead, this Christmas time. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And who knows, you might be the means by which somebody, you might be the instrument by which somebody comes to see their need 
of the Lord Jesus and puts their trust in him and passes from death unto life. Well, may the Lord help us and use us for his glory and for his name's sake. Amen.